Hello, I am so glad that you have come back to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast for all of us looking to bring more love and more courage into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Elaine, one of your hosts, and today we are inviting you into this question. What is the eagle to your weasel? In today's podcast, we are talking all about the experience of feeling a call, feeling that pull towards something new, some new way of living or taking some leap into a more authentic, more loving life. Even when the thought of saying yes to this invitation feels almost unbearably awkward or frightening, or you just feel totally unprepared. So let's start this podcast with an excerpt from an essay by Annie Dillard called Living Like Weasels. And just a warning here, this essay is a little intense with the nature imagery and a little weird, but it is also the best possible transition, I think, into our sermon today, a sermon that I will be delivering. So Dillard writes, and once, says Ernest Thompson Seton, once a man shot an eagle out of the sky. He examined the eagle and found the dry skull of a weasel fixed by the jaws to his throat. The supposition is that the eagle had pounced on the weasel and the weasel swiveled and bit as instinct taught him, tooth to neck and nearly one. I would have liked to have seen that eagle from the air a few weeks or months before he was shot. Was the whole weasel still attached to his feathered throat, a fur pendant? Or did the eagle eat what he could reach, gutting the living weasel with his talons before his breast, bending his beak, cleaning the beautiful airborne bones? We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. I remember when I first felt the call to ministry in my mid-twenties. It was my first real notion of what I was going to do with my life, and it was a very specific and unique call. It was a call to ministry as a second career, which made my biggest challenge then figuring out what my first career was going to be. Because clearly I felt I was very unqualified to be a minister. I mean, I was just a few years out of college. I had no partner, no kids, no life experiences that felt like they were the right life experiences to help me become the right kind of wise, and I felt like I should probably have this very particular certainty about the exact path to saving the world and healing all of our souls. And I didn't have that certainty. In fact, I felt entirely unequipped to do anything very ministerial besides maybe shaking people's hands after the service. But what I did feel was this undeniable pull. I felt a love of church and its people and the magic that happened when we all got together. And I had this terrifying hunch that on some level, ministry was what I was made for. But it's, it's very uncomfortable to feel unequipped, unprepared, to feel like you don't know what you're doing. I personally, I really like the safety and comfort of knowing that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm following the playbook. I'm competent and feeling comfortable in my element. And you know, on one afternoon back in 2014, 
a very significant afternoon in my life, I can remember that I was feeling none of these things. On this particular afternoon, I found myself lying down on the pavement of I-35, which runs through Minneapolis, Minnesota, laying peacefully and quietly, but not completely peacefully because I could hear some honks from trucks and cars wanting to pass, and they were accompanied by honks from trucks and cars showing solidarity. I was part of a die-in demonstration shutting down the main highway through the city, a direct action created by local Black Lives Matter organizers, something that I had never done anything remotely like before. And this action was in response to the grand jury decision not to indict the officer who murdered Eric Garner, a Black man by placing a chokehold on him while Garner said 11 times, I can't breathe, until he was eventually forced to draw his last breath. In subsequent months and years, in response to repeated killings of Black people by police, I found myself donning my clergy collar and joining others in shutting down the Mall of America and the airport, gathering at the 5th police precinct and at courthouses, and blocking traffic right in front of a downtown Twins game, always with other colleagues, always with other humans in a big group, guided by the impeccably organized and brilliantly strategic hands of the organizers. What a privilege. What a learning experience. I have no regrets. I have only gratitude at having had the opportunity to join in a movement focused on dismantling white supremacy culture and police brutality. And there is a part of the story that I'm not so proud of. A part of my story. Every time in that moment when the text came that said, we need clergy to show up this afternoon, or the email popped into my inbox. My first knee-jerk response was to frantically search for some reason not to do it. I would pray that someone, a senior colleague, I don't even know who, some imagined authority figure, would walk by my office and say, oh, hey, you know, I see that this is inconvenient for you, Elaine. This wasn't on your schedule today, and I see you're being invited to walk into a huge gaping unknown and make a stand about a very public, racially charged, controversial, heart-crushing situation that is very much in process and unresolved. And you may not realize this, but you're not even qualified to do that. They're not really asking you. So you get a pass. Or maybe this imagined authority figure would say, oh, hey, Elaine, maybe you should just wait until all the evidence is in and some of this controversy dies down and wait until you have total and absolute certainty and reassurance that you're doing exactly the right thing and exactly the right way with exactly the right people. And that comfort level that will be your cue that it's really time to show up in the public square. And you're not comfortable right now, so you get a pass. But alongside those fantasies was a sense of clarity that I was, in fact, the right person at the right time to show up in these ways. And even though I was feeling frightened and unequipped and awkward, and it was deeply uncomfortable to step into the unknown, I knew where I needed to be. It was the right kind of uncomfortable. And I don't think I'm alone in wrestling with those kinds of invitations from life that are both terrifying and deeply compelling. And maybe you have felt that simultaneous push and pull too. That sense that there's a certain door asking you to walk through it, and yet you have no idea what you're doing or how you will handle things on the other side. 
Maybe you're wrestling with leaving your job and pursuing a different life that's calling you. Or maybe there's a relationship or an identity that you've outgrown or it just doesn't fit anymore. It's not working. Maybe there's a crisis or an issue that ignites your passion and even your rage, but there's someone in your life who might disapprove or it feels too scary to put your neck out there. This is a deeply uncomfortable place. And the truth is that we might very well suffer some losses or stumble and fall or feel foolish and lost. And so really, why even do it? Why say yes to the hard thing? Why say yes to that call that is also a huge inconvenience and might create an awful lot of extra work and feelings and might beget even more terrifying invitations? And honestly, like, who would really know the difference if you didn't, if you didn't say yes? Back in 900 BCE, in the ancient Near East, a very young King Solomon was sweating as he wrestled with saying yes to a hard thing for which he felt woefully unprepared. He had to deal with the enormous responsibility of becoming the third king of Israel, and things hadn't gone very well for his two predecessors. The reign of the first king, Saul, was kind of generally a mess, and then came Solomon's father, David, who had great promise, but who also painfully missed the mark in lots of ways. And so Solomon found himself in charge of his people, and very understandably, he was terrified. Yet we see wisdom in his response to his fears. The story goes that God appears to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God says, Ask me for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon, in desperation, he admits he's very young, he's very experienced, and he has no idea what he's doing. But he doesn't ask to be rescued or to be relieved of his position, but instead, Solomon requests a discerning heart. Or at least that's how it's translated in the version of the Bible that we heard this morning. The Hebrew words that Solomon wished for literally are translate are literally lev shomea, and the literal translation is listening heart. Solomon is confronted with a job description and a calling that would make most people just run crying for the hills, and he asks for a listening heart. In the ancient Hebrew of Solomon's time, different body parts symbolized different feelings. The nose represented anger, so you can kind of picture an angry bull with flaring nostrils. And the right arm represented strength. And the heart was not just associated with love and emotions, but the heart was where the will and intention lived. So Solomon asks for a listening heart. He asks for the home of his will and his intention to be listening, to be open and receptive. But here's the thing about a listening heart. The listening heart is not wired to your personal comfort meter. The listening heart is not tracking your sense of certainty. And it is not necessarily picking up on your personal areas of expertise and proficiency, although it's really nice when there is some overlap there. The listening heart is searching for your call, that place where your personal story connects with the greater arc of love and wholeness. The listening heart is searching for your unique opportunity to amplify love and wholeness from your very specific corner of the very vast and interconnected web of life of which we are all a part in just those ways that you uniquely and particularly can. This is your call. And as life flows on, our call changes. It takes so many different shapes across so many different chapters of our lives. 
We might be called to be caregivers, agitators, teachers, listeners, encouragers, creators, organizers. It goes on and on. And whatever our call is in a particular time to impact the web of life in a particular way, it is to be undertaken with our whole authentic and perhaps unprepared self. So this means not forcing ourselves into a mold that someone else has created or performing so it will please others or look like how we think it's supposed to look when we respond to our call. And a very authentic, uninhibited, and wholehearted example of following one's call is Annie Dillard's weasel flying across the sky, weirdly and passionately attached to an eagle. She writes, The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Every day we are offered thousands of opportunities to conform, to consume, to tune out, or to turn away from the eagle that is calling our truest self. And every day we place another tile in the mosaic of our legacy. In fact, there may very well be no better time to say yes to our heart's call than right now. We don't have to be an expert. We don't have to have it figured all figured out. We don't have to show up everywhere at once and take care of everything. We just have to find that one point to plug into right now and hang on. We just have to find that eagle to our weasel. If we wait to get our lives together first, or if we wait to understand the issues absolutely perfectly, or to spend all of our time rehearsing our own defenses against imagined adversaries and critics, we end up blocking ourselves off, preventing ourselves from yielding to that call that wants to lift us up aloft. And the fact is the world needs you to be you right now, fully, wherever you are. Just like it needed Zeusia not to be Moses or Joshua, but to be Zeusia, to be himself. Every Sunday we gather here to name that each one of us has a piece of the truth, and that's how we're going to get through this life together. Each one of us has a role to play right here in the very particular node that we occupy in the vast web of life. And it matters. Because when we listen to our hearts and move in response at our particular node in the web, the whole web changes shape. The whole web moves closer to the shape of love and wholeness. And so in the next week, I want to invite you to keep a listening heart. And when you encounter an edge where you feel unequipped and a little frightened, but also alive and curious, just notice and ask yourself, if I responded to this tug, if I plugged in right here to this thing that is calling me, could the world be a little better for it, even if it makes me uncomfortable? Would I be proud to see this gesture as a tile in the mosaic of my legacy. So let's listen together for those uncomfortable callings. Because can you imagine if we all did this? If this became our practice? If everybody did this? If we aligned our living and our choices with the greater arc of love and wholeness, even when it scares us and we feel awkward and unprepared, we might just discover that we are unstoppable. 
we might just begin to repair a dehumanizing justice system and support the healing of the wound of racism at the core of our country that hurts and diminishes us all. We might just end up teaching our children what freedom, kindness, and generosity look like without even knowing it. And the world might just move towards wholeness a little bit more each time we step into our joy and our power, each time we say yes to our calling. Let us seize what's calling us with that tenacious weasel grasp. May it be so. Amen. As we are thinking about what might be calling us in our lives right now and how we might bravely make that next move towards it, I've invited Foothills member Sally Harris to share her own experiences of following her call, even when it was scary, and her experiences of creating a safe space at Foothills that invites our non-binary and trans kids and their caregivers to be their authentic selves and create supportive and nurturing community. And I also ask Sally some questions about our Be More Gay campaign and the pronoun pins that we have at church right now that you may have been wondering about, but maybe were too shy to directly ask about. So Sally and I talk about it. Here is our conversation. Hi, Sally. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to be talking with you. And you know, the sermon brought up lots of juicy questions I want to ask you. And we're going to get to talking about True You, which is the community forming at Foothills for trans and non-binary and gender creative kids and their parents. But let me first just introduce you. Like, can you tell us your name and tell us how many generations back does your history as with Unitarian Universalism go? Yes. So my name is Sally, she, her, and I am proud to say that I'm a third generation UU and I'm raising fourth generation UU kiddos, which is just, it feels wonderful. I feel so grateful to have been brought up as a Unitarian Universalist. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to just start my kiddos at the same church that I grew up in. That's That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) So I wonder, when was a time in your life when you felt some kind of call, some pull towards something, and even though it felt awkward or you felt unprepared or frightened, that you took the leap and did it anyway? And what happened? When I just bit onto that eagle's neck, you know? Right. (laughs) Tell us about your weaseliest moment or one of them. I'm sure you have lots of weasley moments. Yeah, well, um... The first thing that comes to mind is that I I am an attorney. Yeah, I'm an attorney. And I went to Boston University Law School. I worked really hard. I did really well. And I became a litigator. And I was practicing for five years. And I, we had our first child. And my husband's a social worker. So naturally, he stayed at home. And that was always our plan. And after about a year, he said to me, I think you're starting to resent me. I think you want to stay home. And I was so taken aback by that, you know, like, well, I've come this far and we have so many loans and what are you talking about? That's not the plan. And the more that I kind of thought about it, the more I realized that he was right. Mm. And so we just, we made the decision to move to Colorado and we would, he would be the one, you know, outgoing to work and I would stay at home with the kids. Could I just stop you there? And I'd love to know just a little more if you can recall your feelings or what was going on in your body and that discernment process. Like what did you uncover once you let yourself go there? Yeah. You know, just a lot of is this the right choice? It's not our plan. And I think I am somebody who forms a plan to help deal with anxiety. And so the idea of just completely upending our lives and switching to becoming a stay-at-home mom, which is not something I ever thought I would want to do, but also sitting with it and realizing this is scary, but this is the right choice for our family. 
And then a kind of our new family mantra is we'll always do what's best for our family. Mm, what a great. And that kind of resonates a bit more than we'll live in Colorado forever. Right. Or, oh, or you'll always work and I'll always stay at home or vice versa. But just we'll always do what's best for our family. Yeah. And having that kind of be more of a guidepost has, has, has helped. There's an inherent flexibility in that as opposed to a rigidity of we always will do this thing. Yes. Yes. And a grounding. You know, I mean, it's like a very, you know, it's not flaky flexible. Right. Like we will always do what's best. With what we know at the time, you know. Of course. I wonder, besides the financial piece, what else felt scary about uh, kind of switching roles and you staying at home with the kids? Um, just that it was so far off course and that I had worked for so long and so hard to become an attorney. And then just to kind of put that on hold. You know, I am licensed in Colorado, so that is something that I will likely go back to at some point um, when I feel called to it. And right now, I just, it feels really important to be at home with the kids and on a million committees. I mean, you know, I'm still very involved in things, um, but it feels right in a way that if you said that to me 15 years ago, I would have just laughed you know, and said, no, I'm the lawyer. I'm the career woman. I will always do this. Mm -hmm. And it was also one of those, if you, uh, if you leap, the net will appear. So I remember we had just decided, okay, we're moving in November. Alex didn't have a job. I didn't have a job. We didn't have anybody supporting us, but we had just made up our mind. We're moving in, in November. And so I got in an elevator with one of the police officers that I know. And he said, how are things going? And there was someone else in the elevator, a stranger. And I said, oh, things are good. We're moving to Colorado, November 1st. We don't have jobs, but if you, if you leap, the net will appear. He said, oh, well, good luck. He gets off the elevator, the doors close. And the individual next to me said, um, I couldn't help but overhearing your conversation have you heard about Obama's quit to work program? And I said, no. And he said, uh, President Obama has set it up so that if you quit a job because your spouse has another job in a different state, you're eligible for unemployment. What? And so Alex got a job. I was able to quit my job because Alex had a different job in Colorado. And we were able to have my unemployment help float us so that we could get grounded here in, in Fort Collins. And if we hadn't made that decision and if I haven't, if I didn't verbalize that, we wouldn't, we would have lost out on thousands of dollars that we were eligible for. It's like you said, the net will appear. And then this net guy presented himself in the same elevator. Exactly. Exactly. So again, that just kind of felt right you yeah. know so i i i i um i i liked that you know and so the, you know when it was just like okay that weasel is just grabbing on to the next of the eagle that felt right in the moment you know and it, it did what it needed to do even though it was terrifying and all of a sudden you're in a new place Hi, podcast listeners. It's Elaine. I'm jumping in here to say at this point in the interview, we realized what was going on with Sally's microphone situation, and we fixed it. And from this point on, the audio will be much clearer for Sally. This is where we pick our conversation back up after that brief tech pause. So Sally, I would love to hear more about True You and why you said yes to convening this group and creating that space. So as you mentioned before, um, True You is this new group that we've started for non-binary, gender fluid, gender creative, and trans kids and their parents or their family members. Because we noticed that there was a gap. You know, we've seen programming for high schoolers and above, but nothing for young kiddos. So this was something that I had wanted to do for about a year, but I wasn't sure with safety. I wasn't sure how to facilitate it. 
you know, do we meet at a playground? Do we make it public that we're meeting at a playground? I just had a lot of questions about it. And part of me also felt a wondering about, am I the right person? Right. I'm a, I'm a straight cis female, right? So my gender aligns with my body and shouldn't somebody else kind of step into this? And then Gretchen asked, and I, and I sat with it for a little while and I just realized I needed to say yes to this because I hadn't seen anybody else step up. I am very protective of my kiddo and my, you know, I have a 10 year old who's non-binary and I didn't want them to be involved in some group that felt icky in some way. And I wanted it to feel really positive that we're celebrating these children and their families and that we're helping everybody out on their journey wherever they are. And so I said, yes. And I've been really grateful that I was asked and grateful that I said yes to doing this work. And we had our first True You session two weeks ago and it was fabulous. It was fabulous. We had kids and, you know, one of the kids we know and we've known this kiddo for several years. And, and my partner, Alex, was there and he said, I've never seen that child so happy. Because there's something, yeah, there, there's just, it was almost like a, a blossoming. You know, when, when you get to go and pick your pronoun pin in the way that aligns with how you really are and your actual pronoun, not the one that society gives to you the minute you're born, but the one that is actually yours. And then you get to wear it and show it and be around people who are going to honor that. It was really powerful to see this child just beaming. How beautiful to hold that space. What has it been like for you, Sally, as a mom accompanying your child on their gender journey? How has that maybe aligned with some experience of call or at least just feeling like you're doing the right thing, but maybe not really having a map or a right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there is no map. Um, I wish that there was at times. However, I think if I was holding a map, I would be saying to my child, look, the next stop is this. Mm-hmm. And I would be leading the way. And that was one of the first things I learned is that the child needs to be the leader. And I will be the advocate and I will help with all of the steps, but my child needs to be the leader because it is their gender journey. And starting out, you know, when you have three-year-old and younger, the parents really are the gender guardians was a word I heard. You know, you are choosing, are you putting your kids in dresses? Are you putting your kids in overalls? Are you only doing pink? Are you only doing blue? Or are you having fun with that? Are you having fun mixing it up and, you know, being a little more creative? Because you're starting to give those messages to your child at a very young age and all of society is. Um, So that's been kind of a guiding post of letting my child be the leader. And also going back to that, you know, when this all started happening, when my child was changing and we weren't quite sure what was going on, Alex and I talked about unconditional love. And realizing if we love our child unconditionally, we're not making any mistakes. Mm-hmm. And on your gender journey, there's lots of different twists and turns. All of us have gone through that and nothing is a mistake. It's just another plot on the road. And that has been something that we've come back to. It wasn't a mistake for me to go to law school. It wasn't a mistake for me to be a litigator. Those tools have been extraordinarily helpful on this journey. You know, researching all the things you need to research, looking into the laws, looking into our rights. It's, it's, it's all led us to where we are right now. And we're in a good spot right now. What helps you ground yourself in that uh, truth that, you know, if we're moving in the, in the ways of unconditional love, uh, that we can't, uh, uh, kind of to rephrase here, two things that you just said that really landed for me is that 
when we move with unconditional love and we parent out of unconditional love, then that is just good and right, whatever it looks like. And also just a reminder that nothing is wrong here, that even though it may not follow the norms, that uh, there's nothing wrong going on here, even when we get surprised or it's kind of out of the ordinary. And so that's a, a long beginning to, to asking you, Sally, what helps you ground yourself in those moments where maybe like the fear crops up or you start to doubt yourself? How do you return to those like grounding truths? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, I think, I think another step is just remembering where we are now and focusing on the age of our child. And, you know, we're living in Fort Collins. We have a really supportive church. And coming back to that helps us stay grounded. You know, and I remember reading something you know, because because I, I worked for the first year and a half. And so I'd ride the train every day into the city and I would just read all of these parenting books. And one talked about love and how you might feel like you are unconditionally loving your child. But if you ask the child, how do you know that your your parents love you? They might say things like, well, when I get good grades, they're really happy. Mm. Or when I score a goal, they tell me they love me. And you can kind of see that conditionality coming into play. Mm-hmm. And so this has just felt like if by accompanying our child, by letting them choose their clothes, by letting them tell us what pronouns to use, we are again and again showing we love you no matter what. We'll always be there. Mm-hmm. You know, so that has been really helpful. Yes. I love too that practice of. Uh, I'm hearing the practice of just honoring your child's humanity and wholeness, however it's showing up in the moment, and also just being in the moment. So not projecting out, well, what will I do in this imagined scenario that would take place in another decade? Right. Uh, Because you don't know how things are going to play out. And your kid doesn't know either. Nobody knows. Exactly. And that was one thing, you know, that in the beginning you know, our brains did go there and thinking about the really high rates of suicide and depression and anxiety. And someone pointed out that children and, uh, you know, anyone who is fully accepted for who they are, especially if they are trans or non-binary, those rates of suicide and depression plummet. And those rates are actually less than average which is really good news. And so again, that just kind of helped us go back to, okay, by showing our love and supporting, we're not doing anything wrong. Right. You know, we're not rushing out to do, um, to take different legal actions or anything. If we need to, we will. But following our child's lead. Absolutely. So can I ask you a question about um, something particular to our Foothills community that In the last few weeks, we've put out pronoun pins next to the name tags. So people have a chance to wear a pin that says the pronouns they use, she, her, he, him, they, them, and there are other pin options as well. And I heard somebody, I just happened to notice somebody check out those pins and say, oh, you know, I don't think I need this because it's just really clear that my pronouns are she, her. So I'm good. And the person declined the pin and moved into the sanctuary. No ill will at all. But I wonder if you could share, Sally, your experience of A, just being Sally in the world, and B, being a parent of a non-binary kid. What does it mean to you to have those pronoun pins there? And what is, um, what gets expressed when someone wears a pronouns pin? So I think um, if somebody is wearing a they, them pin, that is a very brave act on their part to say, hey, these are actually my pronouns. You might think it's he, her, he, he, he him. <laughs> you might think it's something that, that's wrong. And I am, I am being vulnerable and I am sharing this with you. 
for me, it kind of goes back to some of the things we've learned with being anti-racist. If you want to really show that you are supportive to the queer community, then throw a pin on, especially if you are cis. And, you know, cis means that your gender aligns with the way that you were born. So putting a she, her pin on is not going to help other people understand, oh, okay, Sally is a she, her. But that does signal to everyone around me that I'm an ally and that I am going to support you in what your pronouns are. And so that's why it's so powerful. And it also just allows for um, really interesting conversations. So when you wear your pin somewhere else, you'll see the people who recognize that you're a safe person. And they might open up to you. They might smile at you. You know, and, and again, why not do this small part to help make the world a better place? Mm-hmm. It seems like the low-hanging fruit, you know, <laughs> like this is an easy step that I can take. Another step that we take as a family is when we go to a bar or a restaurant that has gender-neutral bathrooms or some fun sign on that, that we'll make sure to go up and ask to talk to a manager and just say, hey, we really appreciate your gender-neutral bathrooms. We like knowing that this is a safe place. You know, because people hear a lot of negative feedback all the time. So kind of stopping someone to say thank you resonates. Yes. So another question about kind of things that we're hearing and seeing at Foothills right now, the True You group is part, uh, falls under kind of a larger umbrella of the Be More Gay campaign we have going on right now, which is a creative, innovative response to the anti-trans, you know, don't say gay laws that are coming through legislatures across the country. And I wonder, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, I think seeing a sign that says, be more gay, be more trans. And someone might say to themselves, well, I'm not gay and I'm not trans. Is this still my place? What do you what do you hear when you hear be more gay, be more trans? And I think I'm asking you in particular as a cis woman, I don't know your sexual orientation, but um, I just love to hear how that falls on your ears, given your like identity and your, I don't know, your general saliness. I'll, I'll stop talking now. <laughs> so I, in my mind, I... I I see it being very similar to having a Black Lives Matter sign. Mm -hmm. When uh, when Foothills put up the huge Black Lives Matter sign, I felt proud of our church, that we are living out our values and we are being public about our values. So when I see the be be more gay, be more trans, I feel proud of our church. And I am not going to... um, alter my behavior as far as my sexuality goes, but I am trying to be more public in showing that I am a partner and showing that we are a queer family Mm -hmm. and that I'm proud of our family. And it does say on there, be more you, right? How can you be more authentically you? And I feel like that goes back to the sermon. Your vocation, your calling, it can be scary because it, it, it might make you think, is this really me? right? Is this what I'm being called to do? Is that really me? And if you sit with that, you might find out, yes, it really is me. Mm -hmm. And so taking that leap can be so powerful. But I, you know, and I would encourage if anybody is feeling alienated by those signs or confused about it, please reach out. You know, you can reach out to me personally. You can reach out to any of the ministers to kind of help connect and talk about that and explain because the one thing we want to do is make the circle wider and make everybody feel welcomed. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I would definitely encourage people to reach out to me as well. That's a conversation I would love to have. And I love how you pointed out, be more you. And the last phrase there is be more love as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, which kind of speaks to, to that just, uh, wide, wide 
loving embrace that is our mission, that, that's our call, you know, as a congregation and as a people. Um, and I also think that what I, so Willow Sedam made the artwork and it's this, if you haven't seen it yet, I encourage you to look it up. But it's this just playful creature that's kind of made out of a rainbow and there's a sunshine and clouds. And and I like the playful aspect of it. And I remember a sermon um, that Sean and Gretchen gave years ago. And they said, we invite you to come to church dressed up in a way that feels uncomfortable as far as the gender spectrum. Mm-hmm. and. I think that's a really interesting question. So I would invite listeners to think, okay, if that's the invitation and I'm doing it, how would I show up to church? Because what I, what I realized is I would be, I would feel completely comfortable coming to church looking very, very masculine, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't feel comfortable coming and being really high feminine. You know, and so that was just kind of an interesting playing around with these different thoughts and realizing that gender is a spectrum. And it's just such a limiting way to think if you just think pink and blue. Right, right. Well, Sally, I'm so grateful for your, just your open-hearted sharing and authenticity in this conversation today. It's such a gift. And before we close up our conversation, I'm just wondering, is there anything you wish I would have asked you or anything that's just on your mind right now that you'd like to share? Um, you know, one thing that I, I would just like to advocate for is when you are talking with somebody who uses they, them pronouns and you make a mistake because it can be really challenging in the beginning, just do a quick, I'm sorry, and move on. Don't center yourself in the apology uh, because then it just, feels kind of icky for the other person so just a simple oh and then I saw her I mean I mean them the other day and they and just just move on could you give us an example of what it might sound like to center oneself in the apology or what would make it awkward yes so um let's say I'm talking to you about your child and your child uses is their pronouns are they them Mm -hmm. so I say oh I saw I saw your child the other day. She was walking to the library and I noticed that she, oh, I just said she. And I said it twice. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, it's really hard for me to make the switch from she to they because they is plural. And, you know, I used to know her as she. And so I, I'm just, I'm real, I'm really sorry. Do you forgive me? I'm really sorry. It's it's hard for me. I'm I'm sorry. Right. I just, hearing you say this, it's like you're taking up so much of the airtime, then you're creating this weird responsibility for the child to emotionally care for you. Yeah. Right. As opposed to, I saw her, I saw her the other day. I mean, them, I saw them the other day at the library and they seemed so happy. Mm -hmm. Right. Just keep rolling with it. Keep rolling with it. We all make mistakes, right? Just the same way you might fumble with someone's name or call them by the wrong name. I'm sorry. And move on. Mm Mm-hmm. That's such, thank you. That's such a helpful tip. (laughs) Well, Sally, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. And um, thanks for your time and thanks for sharing with us today. It's really been a treat. You're welcome. Thank you for such a powerful sermon. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Foothills Deeper Pod. I hope you've left this conversation with a little more clarity about what might be the eagle to your weasel at this point in your life, or what you might be glad to have placed as a tile in the mosaic of your life. Whatever came up for you during this time together, I hope this was time well spent. I know that for me, time exploring what it means to be human on this podcast with you is always time well spent. If you have a moment, it would mean so much to us if you could leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. This really does help people discover the show. Uh, And that's really important when people are out there just trying to find the right something that might touch their lives in a meaningful way. And if there's anyone in your life who you think would resonate with the big questions we're wrestling with over here, please do send them the link 
spread the word about the Foothills Deeper Pod. Thank you so much for listening. I'm just so delighted that you joined us today. 